So we're in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26, which is on page 1025 of the Blue Bibles. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So let's ask for God's help, and uh, we'll need to be turning to Luke chapter 1. But we come to you as we always do, needing to be fed from your word. And we pray you would do your work and feed us truly by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a song that Adele made popular a few years ago that goes like this. When the rain is blowing in your face and the whole world is on your case, I could offer you a warm embrace to make you feel my love. When the evening shadows and the stars appear and there's no one there to dry your tears, I could hold you for a million years to make you feel my love. What would God do to make us feel his love? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I take it that there is deep down in you at least some sense that there is a God and you're kind of interesting and wondering, could I know more about him? What is he like? And actually, does his reality, if he is real, have anything to do with my existence and in fact my needs right now? The last verse of the song finishes like this. Nothing that I wouldn't do. Go to the ends of the earth for you. To make you feel my love. To make you feel my love. And in a sense, that's what our passage is about this morning. And in a sense, what the whole of Christmas and the Christian message is about. God himself, actually going further than to the ends of the earth, coming all the way to earth from infinity and from eternity where he dwells. 
Not just to make us feel his love, but to know his love and to receive his love. To know that, yes, he does love us and to demonstrate how much he loves us. And in concrete ways to bring an intervention into our lives that is of the highest importance and the most wonderful outcomes. And in this passage, we see that his plan was to do that, to make us feel his love by coming to earth and being born as a, as a man, as a baby. It's truly remarkable, isn't it? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so this is a woman who's already been established earlier in Luke's Gospel as someone who in old age has become pregnant unexpectedly, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. It's one of the most um, painted scenes. And medieval art is full of amazing pictures of what's called the Annunciation, the announcement to Mary of what was happening to her. This is a much more recent version. We can have the picture up now. Painted by an amazing um, African-American artist, Henry Asawa, who's done some astonishing uh, renderings of biblical scenes. And I think this is a very, very moving picture. And if you look at his imagining of Mary, I guess, like for you, like me, all sorts of things will come to mind. But the first thing you think is that this is not a very well-off person. Think how it could have been if he was going to come, if God was going to come, and a, a woman would bear his son. Who might he have chosen? Martin Luther says God might well have gone to Jerusalem and picked out a daughter of the high priest or Herod, king of the Jews, who was fair, rich, clad in gold-embroidered raiment with a retinue of maids. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. Well, think of how he might have gone about it if he'd been in the uh, early 21st century and they would have had a talent competition. Strictly come mothering. I can see your bump. The Eurovision labour contest. The womb. Nazareth's got contractions. My favourite, the great Bethlehem birth off. But actually it just came for this young woman who may well have not been more than 13, 14. She'd been promised and betrothed to a man almost certainly older than her. But they were not yet married in the full sense. They'd not started living together and sleeping together. And it wasn't in a very well-known or special place. Someone has described it as um, that she was uh, a nobody in a nowhere town in the middle of nowhere, which is slightly over-egging it because Nazareth was quite near to a fairly major trade route. But it was certainly not the sort of place you would have imagined or the sort of person that you would have imagined it coming to. They were uh, not uh, in destitution, but they were at the lower economic end of the spectrum. And we know that from the offerings that were made in the temple after Jesus was born. 
There is in this a great surprise, the surprise that God should come at all, but also that the, the surprise that God should choose this woman in this place to be the bearer of his son. And even at this very early moment in the story, we can see that God shows his love to us and makes us feel his love by the grace that he showed to Mary. Next slide. The grace of this. What is it the angel says to her? Greetings, you who are highly favored, you on whom great grace has been poured. And we need immediately to have a kind of uh, correction to uh, an interpretation of Mary that you'll find in the Roman Catholic tradition and maybe in the Orthodox tradition as well, that she somehow was some, someone of kind of massive personal virtue and goodness, almost being preserved from sin and therefore completely morally outstanding. That's not the meaning of it. The meaning is that God has decided to set his grace on someone who was poor and obscure and in no way deserving of it. The country and western singer and actor uh, Chris Christopherson had a kind of experience of Christ in a hotel room in the early 1970s. I don't know whether it was exactly a Christian conversion, but it was certainly something that was meaningful to him and certainly within uh, a Christian understanding of the gospel and the reality of, uh, of Christ. And after that, he wrote a very moving song entitled, Why Me, Lord? Why me, Lord? And that's part of Mary's response and part of the message to us about how God comes and shows his love to us that he comes to us as we are in our human weakness and frailty. And that it's important to him not to go to Herod's palace or to go to someone who's won some kind of talent competition or the equivalent. But to come to the poor and weak and lowly, the obscure, the forgotten, those who don't stand out and whom typically very few people are actually interested in. And what we, we see right from the beginning is God's interest in the weak and the broken and the poor. And that he wants, through Mary and through Mary's son Jesus, to bring grace into their lives and to show them his love. It's something we must never forget. And it's so encouraging because at some point each of us has some kind of area of inner brokenness. And we must know that God comes to that. Why should he set his grace on Mary? There's no logic apart from the fact that that's grace and that's love. And it's inclusive. He comes to each of us to show us his love. And just his very interest in us, just his approaching of us, just his moving towards us and arranging the circumstances of our lives so that we will encounter him and the message of Christ and his grace. This is all just part of him saying, I want a relationship with you, but it's not on the basis of your strength. 
It's not on the basis of your wealth. It's not on the basis of your achievements or even of your potential. I'm going to come to you at your weakest and most broken and give you grace. Well, that's what he was doing with Mary. He wants us to feel his love by seeing his grace in this great announcement. And then we must look more carefully at the announcement and the nature of it. As I've said, she was uh, going to be married, and uh, this was a bit stronger than an engagement. It was uh, something that you had to go through a divorce, actually, to break free from. But they hadn't actually started sleeping together yet and living together. She was a virgin still. The angel says, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, she's, um, she's troubled at that. Why would she be troubled at that? The thing is that the Lord is with you is something that tends to be said through Scripture to people who are then given something really quite difficult to do. So if you, kind of under, under, if you understand the code, you hear an angel saying, the Lord be with you, and you go, uh-oh. And this is kind of Mary's uh-oh. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this was. But the angel reassures her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You've found favor. You've found, the gra- you've found grace in God. God has decided to, in his grace, give you something very, very special. And then there's the big reveal. You will conceive. A bit, bit more on that uh, later on when they dialogue a bit further. You will conceive. You're going to have a baby. And you will give birth. And you're going to call him Jesus. Now, Jesus was the name that uh, Jewish boys were called, Old Testament Joshua, and it means God saves. Now, there's lots of ways in which um, people use uh, nice, nice uh, names with, with meanings like that. And many of you have chosen biblical names, not just because you like the association of the character, but because you like the meaning of uh, the name, and you think that that's a wonderful thing to give a child. And it is a wonderful thing to give a child, whether you call... Uh, a child something like grace or joy, which is a lovely English word, or hope, or whether you use a, a biblical name with a, a meaning from the Hebrew, uh, perhaps. And it could have just been a, a name which was going to be a sign that God was a God who saves, but immediately he takes it to a, a, a stage uh, and a phase that was uh, really taking it uh, into a much better place. He will be great. And so God is showing us his love, first by showing us his great grace towards us, and then showing us an act of supreme and unique greatness. And that greatness is in this baby as he grows up. He will be great. As he grows, we see that he becomes great in wisdom, great in power, great in love, great in majesty. And the angel anticipates that by saying he will be called the son of the most high. God himself. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And we see that he's going to trace his legal ancestry through his father, uh, Joseph, not his natural father. But that happens with adoptive children, as it does in uh, our society as well. Already it's been pointed out that Joseph is of the line of David. And David was the great Old Testament king, the great archetypal king. The one in whom God's rule was invested in a very, very special way. 
And he's going to have that throne. And he's going to reign over Jacob's descendants. All those who are like the Old Testament people of God, who trust in him, he will reign. There will be power and control and provision. And that will last forever and ever and ever. How can we distill those things down and understand their impact for us? The greatness of what's being promised. I suppose for them it was a bit like how it would be. There isn't a legend like this but that's very active in, our, in, in British society, but there could be. King Arthur, great mythical uh, figure. I used to love reading about King Arthur when I was little. And uh, the, uh, the great thing about King Arthur is that it's said he's gone off to sleep somewhere and one day he may return. Now, I don't think there's anyone currently in the UK who's kind of uh, hoping for the return of King Arthur to put right all our different kinds of political problems. Um, if there is, there's, you know, they, they've got a long wait and could do with some kind of help. Um, but within Israelite society, it was a bit like that. Someone to come and to sort things out. Think of another way of understanding it. Think about the kind of movies and novels where someone gets into a mess of their own making and they're rescued. There's something rather wonderful about that, isn't there? And we, we identify with the person who makes some unwise choices and then some kind of uh, figure comes to rescue them in some way. Now that's what it's talking about. Someone to come and rescue us from the consequence of our own weakness and our own failure. Then think of the kind of novels and movies where it's being rescued from what someone else has done to someone. Being rescued when you're the entirely innocent victim. And once again, the greatness of someone coming like David to rescue people is that we're rescued from the consequences of other people's sin towards us because... God is on the side of victims. Then there's yet another kind of movie where something has been done that is very, very wrong. And we find this in detective stories, and we find it in other places as well, thrillers of different kinds. When I read a detective story, or see uh, perhaps a box set or something like that, the thing I dread the most is the perpetrator getting away with it at the end. Those sort of plot lines are so bleak and unsatisfactory for me. What I like is it being put right again and justice being done. And each of us has a great instinct within that justice should be done. Sometimes we try and take that into our own hands and we're always putting people right. Sometimes that can have bad consequences. But the point of Jesus coming as David's heir is to rescue people and to put things right. And to do so with a perfectly controlled use of power. In a totally um, righteously calibrated way. So there's no excess and there's no undershoot either. Now that's the great hope and the greatness that's here. And we connect that with our own sense of personal failure. We connect that with our own sense of being hurt by others. We connect that with a world with so much that grieves and disturbs us. And so many plot lines in our world of small kinds and big kinds. Where it seems vain to hope in this world for just outcomes. 
And yet the promise of Jesus that God saves and will reign on David's throne says that one day all of those things will be put right. And God has sent his own son so that we may feel his love for us, that he wants to put all those things right for us. Well, Mary asked a very understandable question. Uh, Excuse me, um, you know, didn't you take the class in school? Uh, I mean, it's not far off, is it? How will this be since I'm a virgin? I seem to remember from preaching on this or a similar passage a few years ago. I did the research on this. I think the most advanced creature that can produce a virgin birth is, believe it or not, a turkey. I mean, it seems terribly appropriate and almost too good to be true for a preacher that a turkey of all things should be able to have a virgin birth. But of course, God didn't want to come and impregnate or produce a, an egg from a turkey. We didn't want a turkey saviour that was reserved for Christmas Day. And Mary's question is the natural one and the one that people have asked through the ages. And the angel answers it with clarity and with mystery. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that's basically it. God is going to be at work. There is going to be some amazing act of creativity deep inside Mary, whereby God himself produces a tiny embryo. And we can work through the mechanics of that if you want, but the the main point is that God himself will do what it takes to produce a completely genuine human being in conjunction with what Mary supplies. Now, that's a remarkable thing, and sometimes people have, 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 have debated it and have, have pondered it and even have disputed it and tried to find all sorts of explanations for it. But as someone has written, it actually makes perfect sense that if God himself is going to intersect our space-time history, take on our humanity, live among us, die among us, and be raised again from the dead among us, that the way he first would enter this world would be supernatural. Of course it would be. There's nothing surprising to a Christian about that, however implausible it might seem to the skeptic. But then in many ways, everything about Jesus Christ is implausible if you have a starting point of skepticism. And from the point of view of faith in a God who is real, who wants to show us his love, who wants to show us his love by coming to earth for us, and becoming a man for us, then this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And we need to notice that that is what is being taught here. That this is God himself becoming a man. Now, instantly, I need to say that what's happening is an addition not a subtraction. The mathematics of this is not that anything of Jesus' godness is taken away. He was from all eternity, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, with no beginning, 
not himself created. God in every way. And while retaining all of that, he allowed himself to be joined to a human nature that is totally human in every way too. Physically human. Emotionally human. Psychologically human. Able to get ill. Able to be disappointed in relationships. Able to be hurt. Able to suffer. Able to die. There are great mysteries here. And the church has... um, worked hard on them through the ages. And in the early centuries of the church, they worked very hard on this. They uh, had to, to work out precisely what was being taught in this passage and in other passages and try to put it all together. And I thought for once it might be useful and, and even interesting and maybe inspiring for us to hear of one of those great definitions. So this is from the Council of uh, uh, Chalcedon in 451. And there may be things here that are hard for us to understand, even some words that are used in unfamiliar ways. But there's something about this great statement that I think is good for us to listen to. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man. Consisting also of a reasonable, that means rational, soul and body. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead. And at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin. As regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages. But yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. He is the God-man. And in that, God reveals how much he loves us. This is what God has done to make us feel his love. Who is he in yonder stall, at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. 
And it seems to me our first response is just wonder, love and praise. Bowing in awe and adoration. There is something simply amazing about the incarnation. If you like the the engineering of it, his sheer beauty and magnificence, something unique, inexplicable, mind-blowing, glorious and true. Beyond the very greatest of minds to do more than than find find definitions which, which work but somehow feel incomplete and yet understandable by very, very young children. Does God love you? Does God want you to feel his love? Yes, yes, it's here. It's here in him coming. His love is going a million miles. His love is going to the ends of the earth and beyond for you to say, yes, I love you. I've come to be like you. I've come to show myself. I'm there. In the manger. And the great mystery of the incarnation is that while he was asleep in the manger, he was simultaneously upholding the universe by the word of his power, not ceasing anywhere in any way to be the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, while being also a baby whose nappies or the first century equivalent, needed changing. And he needed to drink his mother's milk. Put alongside this your doubts. Put alongside this your fears that, that, that God's love may have run dry in some way or be rationed towards you. Or that God doesn't understand you because God is up there and you're down here and your life with its pains and difficulties is something he doesn't understand. He understands every strain that we go through. He's been through the equivalent himself. And he has come to rescue us because he's not just man, but God also. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. How would Mary respond? There's a kind of sense in which she almost didn't have much choice because God God was going to do it. But in another sense, her response has echoed down through the ages as the essential posture of Christian discipleship and indeed Christian conversion. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your will to me be fulfilled. I think that's the equivalent of saying, go for it. 
It's not just a passive acceptance. This is a consent with commitment. And I, I use the word gusto because it alliterated with all the other Gs. Um, but I rather like it all the same. This is real Christian discipleship. This is what it means to be a Christian. We say, yes, Lord, you do it. I'm going to trust you. Think of her and what that meant for her. She was going to start swelling. It would become visible. And what happens in a small traditional community where you've got someone who is betrothed to be married, but everyone knows that they haven't begun the marriage fully yet, what happens as their tummy starts swelling? Tongues start wagging. I've got back into a rather wonderful Christmas song, actually. It came out a few years ago. I think it was... um, And a very good combination, too, for those who like such things. So it's a collaboration between Elton John, Neil Tennant of Pet Shop Boys, and The Killers, and it's about Joseph. And uh, anyway, it's a good listen if you like that kind of thing. But it, it kind of addresses Joseph. And one of the lines says, Joseph, are the rumors eating you alive? And that was what Mary was going to face as well. The rumours going around Nazareth. Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you seen her? I mean, it's not that she's been eating more, is it? And no, they hadn't. No, no. I have it on good authority. They hadn't. Well, actually, I'm not so sure now, are you? I mean, you've always seemed such a good bloke, but... I mean, you never can tell. And and don't you think we should be be telling the the religious authorities? I mean, this is pretty serious. There should be sanctions. I'm not sure I want to go on um, associating with someone who's so compromised morally. Pretty tough. In Jesus' life, there were rumours about him having been illegitimate. And then there was just the whole extraordinary thing that Mary was facing. This this pregnancy that was so unknown, the responsibility of carrying God himself in her womb. And yet she says, okay, you go for it, Lord. Have you said that? Do you perhaps need to say it again? There's a sense in which Christian conversion is saying, yes, I'm going to receive your grace. Yes, I'm needy, and the way you're going to deal with that need is slightly different to how I thought it would be. But I'm going to concede and joyfully accept that you know best. You've provided a saviour. I need Jesus in my life. I need him as saviour. I need him as Lord. And I'm going to say, yes, you become my saviour and Lord. I'm turning away from everything else, and I want you. Go for it, Lord. Have you said that? Will you say that? Someone has said that surrender lies close to the heart of salvation. Only when a drowning person grasps the rope or the life belt and surrenders themselves to its pull and strength can they be saved. And only when you surrender to God's way of salvation can you be saved. And this first surrender must be constantly renewed in our lives 
if God is to use us in his service and as we continue as Christian disciples. It's a daily act. But let it not be grim but glad, not forced but free like flowers that open themselves to the sun and say to the sun with gusto, go for it. Open me, take me forward in your way. Mary had this astonishing and unique experience. She had God inside her womb for nine months. She then presumably lived with Jesus, the God-man, for 30 years. There's something unique about that, isn't there? We might think, gosh, that's, that's very special, that's very privileged. Do you know something? She didn't have in those 30 years something that any Christian has now, which is Christ dwelling within us by faith. I believe she obviously knew Jesus and had a relationship with him, but in terms of him dwelling within her by faith, I think that would have happened uh, uh, later on as the Holy Spirit was given at the day of Pentecost. And yet now that is where any of us is. We have a closer relationship to the God-man, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to great David's greater son, to God's rescuer. We have a closer relationship with him, if we are Christians, than even Mary had. Because he lives within us, the hope of glory. And that means that we can face our fears And in some ways, we have even more strength and more reason to face our fears than she did. We have to realize, as someone has said, that the grace of God doesn't mean we'll never wonder at what God is doing. But it does mean that God is always involved at a deep emotional level with us. He says, don't be afraid. Though you're scared stiff, you have indeed found favor, found grace with God. You really have Read my lips. Sometimes we encounter things that make us very frightened. But that doesn't mean we've done something wrong. We've probably done something right. And it's a new and fresh opportunity for God to show that he is real and loving and powerful. And for us to say, you go for it, Lord. Your will be done. I remember when one of my best friends told me that he'd become a Christian. It was all a big surprise to me. And he said, I've been toying up whether Marxism is right or Christianity is right. And I thought, oh no, he's going to tell me he's become a Marxist. Great. And then he said, but I've just realized what a horrible person I am. And I said the most stupid thing anyone has ever said to anyone in a kind of conversion reportage situation. I said, oh, I don't think you're as bad as all that. Um, Fortunately, he ignored me. And he said, I've become a Christian. And the next thing he said was, I'm really scared.
And yet he took his fears to the Lord and he acted as a new Christian disciple. And we were going to a birthday party that he was having. I think it might have been his 21st. And in a speech he made at his birthday party, he announced to his family who were not Christians and many of his friends who were not Christians either. I might have been the only one out of one or two who were there that um, he'd become a Christian. It was a bit of an embarrassment in the room that he said it. He seemed very muddled at the time, and I remember him heading off for the uh, long university vacation. It was 17 weeks that year, thinking, goodness me, how's he going to get to the end of that without me around to help him? Um, Fortunately, he had someone else to help him, and uh, he's still going strong in the Lord. When God draws near to us and shows us his love, Our first reaction can be quite mixed and can contain all kinds of fear. When God takes us on into a new phase of his love, our reaction can be that this is too much, this is too tough, there are things I'm frightened of here. When we look at the example of Mary, we just see someone who weighed all of that up and was very honest about it and very real and yet decided to put her trust in the word of God And said, you go for it, Lord. Let's be like her. Let's imitate that posture of consent and surrender and acceptance and trust. And receive the grace that he wants to give us. To make us feel his love. Let's pray together. We thank you for the great gift of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And Lord, we want to receive that gift and to renew our reception of that gift and to say yes to you again, to acknowledge our need and to receive Christ once more. In his name. Amen.